So this is the third week that we've been uh, in this series, and I'll give my usual disclaimers that I've been giving the other two weeks. Uh, the first is that it's heavily depending uh, on a book by John Piper called When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. And again, as in previous weeks, I make no apologies for that. It's one of the best books uh, that I've got. Unfortunately, I don't have that in my section, but I do have a good uh, couple of John Piper books there. But the goal of this is not to be reading a huge section of the books. Uh, and I, Well, the last two weeks, I've managed not to quote John Piper at all. That was the goal. I've got one quote this week. Uh, but I think in a three-part series, that's not bad going uh, when it's based on a book that he's written. So we're going to be looking uh, this week at at how to wield God's gifts uh, in the fight for joy. Um, but it's worth saying where we've got to, because each of these series are built uh, on each other. So we saw in the first week that the fight for joy is a fight to see. What are we trying to see? Well, it's the glory of God that we're trying to see. And we see that in the face of Christ. We saw that in 2 Corinthians. Last week, we saw that sin obscures our view of Christ and kills our joy. So the fight for joy is also a fight against sin. But we saw again last week that Jesus has defeated our sin on the cross and we share in that victory by faith. We apply that victory as we preach the truth of the cross to ourselves daily. So the fight for joy is really a fight to preach the cross uh, to ourselves. But is that all it is? Is it just a fight against sin? Is there no positive side to it? Well, we've dealt with the negative side, what stops us from experiencing God's joy, what stops us from seeing the glory of Christ. But this week, we're going to consider the positive side. How do we see the glory of God in the face of Christ better? How can we help ourselves do this in the fight for joy? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we'll see that this too is a struggle. On the face of it, we're going to be talking about things that will seem quite simple, Uh, But actually, I've never met a Christian who doesn't struggle with them in some way or another. And what that means is that actually, as we talk about these things, we're a room full of strugglers. We're a room full of people who actually struggle to to put this into practice. If you find it hard, you're not on your own. Everybody finds this hard. The pastor who's speaking to you this morning struggles with the things that we're going to be talking about. So please do not take this morning as a rebuke. This is one beggar showing other beggars where there's bread. And please don't treat this morning as beneath you as we look at some of the practical things. Some of the things that we're going to talk about may seem fairly simple and obvious, but isn't it often the simple and obvious things that we overlook? We think that things are more complicated sometimes than they are. The story's told, isn't there, of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, who decide to go on a camping trip. And after dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night in their tent and go to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes wakes up and nudges Dr. Watson and says, Watson, as you look up, what do you see? And Watson says, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you? And Watson replies, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we are small and insignificant. Well, what does it tell you, Holmes? And Holmes turns to Watson and said, Watson, it tells me that someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) The simple things are often the things that we need to hear and the things that we miss. So don't look down on this morning just because some of the things that we'll talk about are quite simple. 
So how can we fight for joy? How can we fight to see the glory of God more clearly and rejoice in it? Well, our first point is wielding word and prayer in the fight for joy. The fight for joy, we said, is a fight to see. What are we trying to see? The glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. And we saw last time that Christ is supremely seen in the message of the cross. The message of the cross tells us that we are incredibly sinful, but amazingly loved. And this is the message that we preach ourselves uh, to ourselves daily. But where do we find the message of the cross? Where do we find the face of Christ? Well, we find it in the word of God, the Bible. If we are to see the face of Christ, we must go to the book of Christ. God has chosen to reveal himself through his word. And that is where we meet Jesus. And that's why we spend so much of our time preaching. I know we've spent a lot of time interviewing this morning. But normally the biggest part of our meeting, isn't it, is, is the Bible. is looking at God's word. Not because we don't like singing. We do like singing, don't we? Not because we don't think that prayer is important. You know, we could have a 45-minute prayer session on a Sunday morning, couldn't we? But actually, we believe that we see Christ, we meet Christ as his word is preached. The way to the eyes of our heart, you see, that we're talking about that need to see Christ is through the ears of our head. We see as we hear. And this was even true of God appearing to Moses. If you just turn up for a second, Exodus 33. If someone could chat out page numbers, that would be quite helpful. Exodus 33. Page 42. 42 of the smaller ones, bigger ones. 81. So Exodus 33, verse 7. Just watch how the ears interact with Moses seeing God. So 33, starting at verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, see that you bring, uh, see, say, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know by whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, you and I, from uh, and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by uh, by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to the Mount Sinai, and present yourselves there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and went upon Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him, and proclaimed the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth, and worship. I know it's quite a long quote, but it's worth it because there's several ways that we see there uh, just how God uh, appears to Moses. Because Moses, we're told, spoke to God face to face. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because he tells him in a few verses afterwards that no one can see my face and live. So how did Moses speak face to face with God without seeing his face? Well, the clue is in there as the word speak. He spoke to God face to face. Moses beheld God's glory in hearing him speak. And think about it. Moses asked God to show him his glory, but he doesn't actually see God, does he? He hears God. God proclaims his name. He reveals himself by speaking through his word. We see similar things in 1 Samuel chapter 3 on the back of your notice sheets. Uh, You'll see that there. 1 Samuel 3.21 And the Lord again appeared uh, at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. He appeared by the word. He was seen by hearing. And think about it. We saw in the first week, didn't we, that as God spoke with Moses, Moses' face shone. That wasn't from seeing God with his eyes. That was through hearing God. Because he heard God speak. That's how Moses saw God's glory, through his ears. And this makes the word incredibly important in our fight for joy. Because if we want to see the glory of God, well, we need to see it in the face of Christ, but we see it in the Bible. The Bible is crucial in our fight for joy. It is a gift that God has given us for our joy. And we see it in the whole world, even even back in Exodus, in the whole word. And this is why, I know I've said it before and I'll say it again, the whole Bible is a book about Christ. But do you see now why that's so incredibly important? Because if only some parts of the Bible are about Jesus, then only some parts of the Bible are useful to us. 
If we cannot see Christ in Lamentations or Two Chronicles, then what use is there reading this book? We had a quote from Spurgeon already from Phil. Uh, Here's one from Spurgeon. Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. He's saying every time I get a passage, I'm looking for how it uh, gets to Jesus. So he preached Christ in every sermon from Old Testament to New Testament. This is what he said in one of his sermons. The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. That's what Spurgeon said. So as we come to the word, we must be looking for Christ. Because as we see the face of Christ in scripture, we're seeing the glory of God. And it's helpful in our fight for joy. But do you see that means we actually have a tremendous arsenal for our joy. It's not just snippets of the Bible, bits and bobs here and there. Actually, the whole word of God is there for our joy. So if we want to be joyful, then we must be word-saturated. What do I mean by that? Well, we hear it preached, don't we? Now, I know most of you believe in preaching, because you're here hearing preaching. That's what you're here doing, isn't it? So we hear it preached. We read it to ourselves. We don't talk much about a daily quiet time, I think, anymore. It's a useful tool. It's not a biblical commandment to do it every day. But I think it's a wise and thoroughly sensible thing to do. I think it needs a new name, though, a quiet time. Because if you think about it, we want it to be anything but quiet, don't we? Actually, we do it to hear God speak. It should really be a a loud time or speaking time or, or something like that. But it's a time when we spend time in the word and prayer. We memorize it. Hide it in our heart. And there are loads of good resources online now. I, I go to an app where it'll, it'll do you as a song, virtually any verse you want. And somebody's put it to a tune and you can learn it that way. How great is that? I memorised the whole chapter of Romans while I was teaching. I just used to do it in between lessons. You know, the sort of bits while the kids are queuing up outside. And you make them wait for a little bit just to show them your boss. I'd, I'd learn uh, books. I don't mean that to boast, but just mean that even if you're busy... Actually, there's time to learn uh, God's word. Meditate on it. Think about it. And I don't mean a, a huge quantity of, of stuff. You, know, you could do seven chapters a day, couldn't you? But seven plates of the world's best food, well, that'd probably make you sick, wouldn't it? Even if it was the best food in the world. We need to take time to inwardly digest it. We want to hear God speak, don't we, through his word. And if you want to hear more about this, I did a sermon on the word of God in the Psalms last year, which is on the website. And we looked at really practical ways we could do all those things. There is one more way that we we can do it, but we'll come to that in a moment. But can you see that the Bible is our main tool in the fight for joy? Why? Because it allows us to see God. It helps us as well to fight sin that we were talking about last week. You know the saying, don't you? This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. The Bible is there to help us in that. But there'll be a question in some of your minds, I think, this morning. By focusing on the Word, are we neglecting the work of the Spirit? By focusing on the Word, are we neglecting the work of the Spirit? Well, I'd want to say that the Bible works for these things because of the Spirit. The Spirit works through His Word. 
It was the Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. And they worked together hand in hand. This is my one uh, Piper... Oh, I was going to give it as a surprise. It's a Piper quote. There we go. (laughs) It's a big face there. Um, This is what he said about the Word and the Spirit. His purpose for our lives is that the work of his Spirit happened through his Word. And that the work of his Word happened through his Spirit. The Spirit and the Word are inseparable in awakening and sustaining joy. From the first act of regeneration to the final act of glorification, God works by the Spirit through his word to glorify his Son and satisfy his people. Piper goes on to explain that the Spirit produces joy by the word so that Christ is glorified. Because it's Christ's word. It's a word that speaks to us about him. If he gave us joy without the word, then our joy would not be in Christ. It would be in something else. So he could sort of supernaturally just make us suddenly joyful. But if it wasn't in Christ, if it wasn't in his word, then actually it would be finding joy in something else. That wouldn't be glorifying to Christ. So the Spirit has been given to glorify the Son. And he does that as he produces joy in us through the good news about his Son. But just as the Bible and the Spirit go hand in hand, so the Bible and prayer go hand in hand too in the fight for joy. Why is that? Well, ultimately the the gift of joy is a gift, isn't it? It's a fruit of the Spirit. As I said in the first week, we can do all these things, but it's no guarantee of joy because joy is a gift. But if it's a gift that God gives, well then prayer is our access to it, isn't it? As we pray to God. I'm not going to say too much here, partly because we've got a lot to cover, and partly because I preached a whole series on prayer earlier this year. And there's also an equivalent to the Bible talk about prayer in the Psalms, uh, which includes a lot of ideas about how we can pray. But we must do this for joy. We must do our Bible reading prayerfully. Prayer is a weapon in the fight against sin as well, and it's also an ally as we read the Word. We must read the Word prayerfully and pray Wordfully, that was the only way I could sort of want to make it work. But the two go together. And the Bible is full of examples, isn't it, of people who call out for joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Make me glad as in the days of old. And Jesus bids us ask for things that our joy may be full, may be complete. So we must wield word and prayer in the fight for joy. The second thing, though, is wielding the world in the fight for joy. Another gift that God has given us is creation itself. That's a gift to help us in our fight for joy. Now that might be surprising, because the world we know is corrupt, isn't it? But we can use the world against itself. There is a danger, though, as we look at creation that we're more susceptible to with the other ones. And that danger is idolatry. The danger is that our attention is moved away from looking to Christ and move towards looking at something else. We end up worshipping the object rather than the creator. We end up valuing the gift above the giver. I say that because we've talked about it in previous weeks, haven't we, and I've said it's coming at some point, that there are other joys that we enjoy in the world, aren't there? There are good things that we experience. Um, But our ultimate joy comes from Christ. But does that mean, then, that we shouldn't find joy in anything else? Is it displeasing to God if we enjoy a meal or if we enjoy spending time with somebody is it somehow making Christ less 
Well, to help us think about this, I've got a quote from C.S. Lewis and his tool shed. It'll make more sense as I read it. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black and I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. So you get the picture, he's stood in a shed looking at a beam of light. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. What he's saying there, actually, is that there's a difference between looking at something and looking along something. And in the pleasures that we experience, we can either look at them or we can look along them. And the goal is to look along the beam, if you like, of the other pleasures to God. To look to Christ as we look along those things. Let me explain by giving you a sort of practical example. Think about the beauty of creation. We can either look at creation or we can look along creation. Think about a sunset. You get some really lovely sunsets on the Western States. You get to see the sort of sky change colour to that lovely pink. I hope you live in a place where you can you can see that. I bet Indonesia is probably great for... I don't know, is there good sunsets on the equator? Um, you get wonderful, beautiful creation. But if it finishes at just looking at that, then there's something wrong. We don't look at it, we look along it. If we don't... If we don't let it take our thoughts to the fact, well, actually, God created this. If it doesn't make us think, wow, what an amazing God to give us this, then really we're sort of turning it just into a, a sort of idol. We're making an idol of creation. That's not a new thing. You know, Mother Earth, Gaia, Freya. We don't do that exactly, do we? We don't sort of say, oh, this is another God or, or something else like that. But do we enjoy the gift And not let it remind us and point us to the giver. I think we can do that. Or sometimes we just don't look at it at all. We just stay inside our house and we don't go go out, do we? We don't enjoy the things that God has given us. Sometimes we don't bother with the beam at all, do we? But don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we go out into the countryside and sort of ditch church. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that creation is a gift that God has given to us. To look along. To help us see him. And appreciate him, the giver of that gift. So don't miss the weapons that God has put in your arsenal in the fight for joy. But the same is true with other pleasures that God has given us. Nearly all of them are mediated through our bodies, aren't they? Through our senses. And we are physical beings. We've talked about creation, but if you think about it, we're not really talking about creation. We're talking about our eyes. Things that we use to look at things. Sounds like spiritual, doesn't it, a bit when you start talking about bodies? But it's not all, is it? The Bible unashamedly talks about bodies. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, what's it going to be? Lives, souls, spirits, bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 1 Corinthians six fifteen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take them, the, the um, members of Christ, and make them members 
of someone else? Never. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. We were made physical beings to enjoy physical pleasures. And that's what our passage in 1 Timothy speaks of. Do you remember back in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5? Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What's the teaching of demons in 1 Timothy 4? Well, it's forbidding marriage and the eating of certain foods. It's saying that the physical is wrong and the spiritual is good. Physical pleasure is evil, whereas spiritual pleasure is good. Historically, we've called this idea dualism. Plato and Aristotle really liked it. They were the sort of main proponents in the ancient world. And dualism massively influenced an early Christian heretical group called the Gnostics. They believed that the body was bad and the spirit was good. Some of them denied that Christ came physically because why would he take a body? If the body is bad, then why would he come in the flesh? That's the background to a lot of New Testament books uh, sort of trying to go against this, uh, this heresy or the beginnings of it. It had two offshoots. One was, do whatever you like physically. Doesn't matter. Only the spiritual counts, so just do what you like with the body. The second option was avoid physical pleasure altogether. And it seems here in 1 Timothy, that's the group that Paul's alluding to. He's saying that they're actually trying to make you avoid physical pleasures. There are two classic things that bring us pleasure. There's marriage there, and the physical side of that that's associated with it. And food. And those things, Paul says, were things given by God to be enjoyed. Provided that they lead to thanksgiving. Do you see that? That they're actually there to give, for us to give thanks to God. And also that they're sanctified by the word and prayer. In other words, they don't become ends in themselves. It doesn't just stop at those things. Paul elsewhere counsels married couples to, to enjoy the physical side of their relationship. That might sound a little bit strange, but it shows us how imbibed we are with this dualism sometimes, within our own Christianity. He wrote to the church in Corinth that seemed to be struggling with some form of dualism. You see, they got both extremes. There were some that were sort of going off and doing crazy stuff, uh, sort of immoral things, and some who were sort of avoiding everything physical altogether. And he wrote to them actually saying uh, that they should be involved with each other physically, that they shouldn't deny at one another. I put the verse on the back of your uh, sheets, but you can look at it later on. But they are saying it's good to avoid the physical side of marriage. And Paul is saying, no, get married if you're going to struggle with that sort of thing. And when you're married, don't deprive one another of the physical side. He says they can abstain for a little while, but that's a concession to them, not a command. And the same is true when we think about food and drink. They're given to us to enjoy. Now, that's not an invitation this morning for you for gluttony. I'm not saying go out and eat all the cakes outside, although, you know, on biscuits and things. 
But when you have a fantastic meal, don't just praise the chef. Praise the Lord. Look along the food, the good things that God has given you. Don't look at them. So don't live for food and sex like the world does. Live for the God who gave us food and sex and marriage to enjoy. Enjoy the things of the world. Do things that you enjoy. But don't let them be ends in themselves. Let them well up into praise in your soul to the great giver of the gifts. The very gifts that you're enjoying. Because if it ends with the world, if it ends there, then the world is won. We've been overcome by the world. We've allowed it to distract us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. But if we can look along these things, then we overcome the world. We've used its methods of distraction as fuel for our devotion. So let me give you an easy test to see which way you are, whether you're overcoming the world or are overcome by the world. Could you live in a world without cake? Think about that. Could you live in a world without cake? If you're married, could you, could you live in a world without the physical side of your relationship? But then think about these two questions. Could you live in a world without Christ? Could you live in a world without God? If we're more disappointed by the loss of the first two, if we're more disappointed by the loss of cake than we are of Christ, then we're not looking along the beam, we're looking at the beam. And we need to repent. But we also need to be aware that these things are not evil in themselves. God gave them as good things to enjoy. And if we ignore the physical side in the fight for joy, then we're not being super Christians, we're being super dualists. We're sort of splitting ourselves in two. So think through, I, I've nearly had it as the over coffee question, think through what it means to be a physical human being in terms of your rest, in terms of your sleep, in terms of how much you eat. Those things are, can actually be linked to your joy. John Piper writes in his book, you know, is patience a, a fruit of the spirit or a fruit of a good night's sleep? <coughs> so I've got two Piper quotes there, haven't I? I haven't got that one written down. <laughs> but you see his point, that actually there is a physical side to us which can affect the spiritual. Sometimes there are physical problems. Sometimes there are physical issues that we can do something about. So don't neglect the physicals. Use your own body in the fight for joy. But our body is not the only body that God has given us in the fight for joy. Our last point is being the body in the fight for joy. Being the body in the fight for joy. There is another dimension to the fight for joy. There is another way of looking at that race, fixing your eyes on Jesus, that we've seen over the previous weeks. And that is that we were never meant to fight or to run alone. We were never meant to run by ourselves. So 2 Timothy 2.22, again, I think it's on the back of your notice sheets. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. It's the sort of running imagery. Righteousness, faith, love and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Or Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2, again, which we've looked at several times over the past few weeks. Just know all the, the bits that are together. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you notice that we're supposed to run together? We're supposed to fight together, not against each other, but with each other. And that's more than just running next to each other. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you get that picture, you're the sort of marathon runner, and just everybody else is around you. Being, being the body is not doing your own thing next to somebody else. It's actually helping one another. So it's less sort of Mo Farah, you know, sort of running out miles away from everybody else just by himself. And more the Brownlee brothers. Do you remember? One of them stopped and helped the other one up when he fell over. It's less Rambo, you know, just one guy fighting by himself. And more Band of Brothers. A group of people helping each other, working together for a goal. And winning in the context of the body is not record-breaking times that make everyone look in wonder. Winning in the context of the body is that everybody makes it over the finish line. That might sound a bit unglorious. And it is, in a way, because it's not the sort of glorious, you know, world-beating times. But there is glory there when we make it over the finish line. Because we'll share in his glory. The one who did run the race in spectacular fashion. We get to share in his victory, as we said last week. So our lives now are laying down our lives for each other, that we might all make it over the finish line. Helping others in the fight for joy, just as we fight ourselves. Paul saw his life in in these terms, uh, in Philippians. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The reason that Paul believed that God had left him alive, that he hadn't taken him to be with Christ, was to work for the joy and progress of others. That was his purpose in life. Has it ever dawned on you that your purpose in life might be to work for the joy and progress of others? So actually, we are part of a body. We are to help one another in the fight for joy. But there is another group that come in with the body. We actually have another group that can help us in our fight within the body that aren't within this room. Now in the race, you see in Hebrews 12, we have a great cloud of witnesses. All those people cheering us on. But there are also, now wait a second before you get too scared of it. There are also dead people who can help us in our fight for joy. Dead people can help us. It's a bit like in Lord of the Rings. You know, the, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. I know some of you are, some of you aren't. But there's that bit where basically, you know, Aragorn gets, uh, gets to get this big army of people who've died. Uh, and they basically, I don't know why he doesn't just get them at the beginning, to be honest, because that would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it, if he just got them to fight all the battles. But he's got this overwhelming army that he can call on to just come and help them win the day. Well, do you know what? We've got an overwhelming army that we can call on as well. Now, don't worry, I'm not talking about prayers for the dead or mediums or anything like that. But actually, we've got 2,000 years of people who've run the race before us. We've got their stories in Christian biographies. They've written Christian books. 
Now, of course, we've got the examples in Scripture that are there given to us in in, uh, Hebrews 11. Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, all engaged in the same fight. But also we've got these people, great men and women, who've left us a legacy of great tales of God's faithfulness and great books which speak of their own fight for joy. And do you know what that means? It means every year the church gets stronger. Because every year there are more men and women of the faith who die, leaving their legacy behind for us to follow. Christian biographies are written so that we can follow in their footsteps in the fight for joy and learn from some of their mistakes as well. Please don't read biographies that make out that Christians never make mistakes. They will only depress you. Right? But ones that actually treat it real, show you the real fight, can be so, so helpful. And Christian books can strengthen us as well. Meaty ones. Don't just go for the easy ones. Meaty ones. That means old ones as well. Let's not be chronological... Let's not be snobs about time. (laughs) Read old books. Actually, there's lots of wisdom there. Let's not be snobs about that. But also, the other way round... Let's not be snobs the other way. Read some new books as well. Because they are building on the old books as well. Let's not be snobs the other way round. And we have more available to us now than at any other point in history. It always strikes me when we're talking about sort of getting the scripture in other languages. Well, imagine how long it will be until they get the good Christian books that we've got in English. I mean, I lived in France and it was, you know, books that had come out a few years ago, they're still getting around to translating. We've actually got an amazing wealth of Christian literature to help us. That's partly why I brought those books this week. So God has given us all these things. He's given us dead people to help us. But all that said, please don't let the dead replace the living. God has put us in local churches. That's his design for believers. As he adds us to the body, he adds us to a body. He has remade us for one another. So do not let the distant and dead replace the living and the local. Your small group leader might not be John Owen or Tim Keller. Your pastor, believe me, is painfully aware that he is not C.H. Virgin, John Piper or Richard Baxter. But remember, it's not about the glory, is it? It's about getting over the line together. Think about it. When you were a child, your mum might not have cooked for you like Delia Smith. I imagine that she might have been around, but that was the big cook when I was uh, a child. But she kept you alive. She nourished you. She cared for you. And I bet you would have never swapped your mum for Delia Smith. I don't know. Maybe you would. I don't know. But the people around you, they might not be super saints, but they're yours. They are here to work for your progress and joy. And the same is true for you. You might not be a super saint, but you are here to work for the people around you, for their progress and joy. How? By helping them in all the ways that we've been talking about. Fighting sin, reading the word, praying. So be the body in the fight for joy. Help one another in the race. The fight for joy is a fight to see and savour the glory of God in the face of Christ. Sin obscures our view of Christ and kills our joy. We fight it by preaching the truth of the cross to ourselves daily. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed to us in his word by his spirit. 
So the fight for joy is as we read it, hear it preached, memorise it, meditate on it prayerfully. And God has given us other gifts too that we've been hearing about this morning. The gift of our physical bodies in the world in which we live. And he's given us each other. So the challenge is to wield everything. Every gift in the fight for joy. The challenge is to help one another to do the same. So that we all make it over the finish line. So that we can see and saviour the one who bought us by his own blood. The Lord Jesus.